0: Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, Episode 4. I'm Joey Brannon, I'm your host of the Axiom Podcast, and this is the fourth episode we're Kind of getting into a groove here of being able to release these on a weekly basis. So I'm glad you're here with us and looking forward to talking about our topic today, which is kind of following up on the heels of last week's topic. Last week, we talked about time and task management. And this week, we're going to talk about the role of customer service and business strategy. And just like last week, this is not a topic that a lot of people automatically think Oh yeah, I need to integrate customer service into my business strategy. Time and task management, customer service, there's actually two more topics that I also want to talk about in succeeding episodes. They don't make it into kind of the toolbox of the folks who do business strategy or help companies um, build strategies or even execute on those, but they're what we call at Axiom housekeeping items. These are the things that we have to do before we can really get into the architecting of a business strategy or a strategic plan. So these are really, really foundational, and it doesn't matter what we put on top of these for business strategy stuff. It's not going to have a chance to really succeed in the execution if you don't have these fundamental things. And I didn't, I didn't start out knowing this stuff. It's only been through trial and error, error over the last, you know, six, seven, eight years of working with small companies. And you go in and you try to set up this strategy. You get, the company has a vision. The, the founder or the current owner kind of knows where they want to go. They've got this, this idea in their head of where they want to take the company. So we help put together the strategy for that, and then we get the the team around it, and we pick out the goals and objectives that are going to tell us whether that strategy is being effective or not. And we get into the execution and six or eight weeks or 10 weeks or or 20 weeks later, we we keep coming back to the same problems in execution. And it has to do, a lot of times it has to do with behaviors of people on the leadership team. And those behaviors are often tied to some of these foundational housekeeping things that we're talking about, time and task management last week and the role of customer service this week. So let's get into it. why is it a housekeeping item? Like, why is it this kind of fundamental area that affects so many other things in the organization? And there's a reason, the the reason that it does affect so many areas is because it will underpin your interactions, not only with customers, but also with employees. Um, It'll affect the way that, Employees relate to their team leaders. It'll affect the way team leaders relate to their employees. It'll affect the way you relate to your vendors. It'll affect your expectations about all kinds of things. But the, probably the first area that we see a major impact in customer services on the company's brand. The brand of the company is kind of like the, the cultural ethos that gets put out there to the public, to the customer. Who is your customer to the, who is your company to the customer? That's your brand. And if you think about customer service, there are d- there's definitely companies that are, you know, the brand is customer service, but it doesn't really matter what business you're in or what kind of company you are, whether you're a publicly traded billion-dollar company or you're a small mom-and-pop restaurant on the corner of, of Main Street, the customer service aspect of what you do is going to affect people's perceptions of your business if you think about, there's there's two really well-known uh, players in the airline space that kind of illustrate this. You have Ryanair, which kind of started in Europe, and Southwest, which is a U.S.-based carrier. And Ryanair is, is a low-cost carrier. They're kind of like the Walmart of the airlines. And their customer service is notoriously lousy because they don't invest in it. It's very hard for you to get a hold of a person, a real live person, when you call in. Um, If you have special requests and you get to the ticket counter, you're pretty much out of luck. If there even is a ticket counter, Uh, it's just, it's not known. Their brand is not built around any kind of customer service whatsoever. Then you go to Southwest. Now, Southwest didn't intentionally build their brand around customer service. They built their brand around reliable, low-cost airfare like no frills airfare. That's that's kind of the Southwest brand. Pricing-wise, at least when I check it, to the routes that I fly to, Southwest isn't that much different from a lot of the other carriers. I think they've done a good job in bringing some of the industry's expectations down about price. But the one thing that's very interesting about Southwest is every time you fly, you're going to be surprised at some point during the journey by somebody's customer service attitude. Uh, there's great YouTube videos about... Um, you know, all the different rifts that Southwest pilots will do when they're giving the weather or flight attendants will will go through when they're doing the safety instruction. And it's very, it's kind of, it's very cool. But that has, Southwest has become known for that because they made it a big priority in their business. And, and what they're really after, we're gonna talk about this later, the reason that they wanna make this part of their business plan is because it helps drive repeat business. And that's worked very well for them. Another example that that I've run into and been kind of ranting to people about locally for the last couple of weeks is a Starbucks versus McDonald's. So there's a, a new Starbucks kind of close to my house. It's kind of on the way um, to my house. So if I if I leave to go do something, I'm, there's a good chance I'm going to pass this thing. And so the other day, I had an appointment um, with a local client, and I, I was. I had like 20 minutes before I had to be there, and they're right down the street. So I thought, I'll stop in, I'll grab a coffee, I'll crack the laptop, and I'll knock out, you know, I'll go through my email inbox at least so I don't have to do it later. But this place is very popular, and there literally was not a parking spot anywhere near where I needed to be. So there's a McDonald's probably 50 yards away, and I I knew they had Wi-Fi access, so I thought, well, you know, Okay, it's not Starbucks coffee, but coffee's coffee. I knew that wasn't true, but, you know, anything would do. I was more interested in the Wi-Fi access than anything. So I walk into this McDonald's, and it's um, it's not technically McDonald's. It's McCafe. You know, this is the brand that they rolled out a few years ago where they, they serve more upscale coffee drinks, lattes and cappuccinos and frappuccinos and all that other stuff that they're trying to compete in this coffee space with. And so – and. And it's actually kind of a nice space. It doesn't, It's not dirty. It doesn't look like a rundown McDonald's. It's been there for 20 years, even though it probably has. But they've spent some money to kind of to revamp the space, and they've got this new brand, McCafe brand. But when I walked up to the counter to order my coffee, it felt like the worst McDonald's experience you could ever. I mean, it's like all the stereotypes you have about McDonald's. Um, Young workers who are undertrained and disinterested and don't give a rip and are more concerned about the cell phone text that they're about to send or whether they've gotten a reply or updating their Facebook status or whatever. All the negatives that you could roll into uh, a description of a bad customer service experience, I experienced in about 15 seconds. I mean, it was just, it was tangible. And I remember thinking... Here's a brand that's in decline, and 50 yards away is a brand that's on the rise. You know, and Starbucks has been doing well for quite a long time. They weathered the recession. They closed a lot of stores. But here locally, every time they open up a new shop, it's packed. I mean, you can't get in there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because everybody wants to be there. And when you experience the customer service end at Starbucks, you get that impression, the people are happy to see you. They use your first name. They kind of riff and go and go off script. Um, they have the freedom to do that. I think they're encouraged to do that. And it's generally a fun place to interact with somebody. If you walk into a Starbucks in a bad mood, you're not necessarily gonna leave in a great mood, but your bad mood isn't gonna get worse. If you come in and you're just kind of having an ordinary day, you're gonna leave with a smile on your face. If you come in and you have a great day, you're having a great day, you're going to find people to share it with. Okay? But that's not the case at the McCafe that I went to. So it's just two examples of how the customer service experience will flavor your brand, whether or not you set out to make that your brand or not. And another good example of a company who set out to make that their brand is Ritz Carlton. The Ritz Carlton experience is all about customer service. But the one thing, the what's something that's interesting about Ritz-Carlton? I've been to a couple of them, and to be honest, the hotels themselves—they're hotels, right? There's not, there's nothing that special about them. And I was doing some show prep. I, I pulled up some stuff that was comparing Four Seasons and Ritz-Carlton, and I've never stayed at a Four Seasons, but it was interesting to note that they said um, the Four Seasons experience, the the room doesn't feel like a hotel room. If you, they said, you know, when you stay at a Four Seasons, you're probably going to leave or find yourself thinking at some point during your stay, you know, how can I make my home more like this experience? But you don't think about that at a Ritz-Carlton because it doesn't feel like your home. It feels like a, ho- a nice hotel room, but it feels like a hotel room. But the thing that Ritz-Carlton has built their brand on is customer service. And there's another uh, company out there, Hilton, that has comparable rooms i you know i've stayed in several hiltons and maybe their rooms aren't quite as the ritz-carlton is probably newer uh, because those brands their expansion has tended to be in the last several years where hilton is a decades-old enterprise but the rooms are about the same but the customer service experience is completely different in the two and so you have ritz-carlton who has basically the same infrastructure as a, you know, newer Hilton hotel chain that has banquet facilities and nice pool and all that. I mean, I understand there's a lot of different Hiltons, but if you take a nicer Hilton and a Ritz Carlton, you put them side by side, facilities wise, they're about the same, but pricing wise, they're completely different. Ritz Carlton's gonna get a 20 to 30% premium over Hilton and they're hanging their hat on this luxury experience that comes through customer service. The fact that they know your name when you pull up to the valet. Um, and the fact that the valet driver relays that name to the doorman, and the doorman relays that name to the, the um, clerk at the counter. So by the time you get to the check-in desk, you've heard, uh, Welcome, Mr. Brandon. we're so glad to see you, three or four times. And your wife has heard that, too. And you both kind of walk into the experience in your first 45 seconds to a minute having heard your name three or four times and having been told that you're so, they're so glad to have you staying with them. So so it affects what. why, going back to kind of the overall theme uh, that we're on right now, why is customer service such a big housekeeping item? It affects your brand. It affects your prices. It also affects your repeat business. Now, the interesting thing about repeat business and the reason it's so important in a successful growing business is that it's the cheapest kind of business to acquire. You generally don't have to spend much to get repeat business. You don't have to invest in more advertising. You don't have to put more perks out there. You don't have to have special contests. You just have to do a really good job the last time they were with you, and they will come back to buy your product, to stay at your hotel, to have you perform whatever service that you your business was, preparing a tax return or what Whatever. Repeat business is the cheapest kind of business that you'll find in any business. It's cheaper financially because you don't have to invest in the advertising and those kinds of things, but it's also cheaper just in terms of headaches. And I don't mean customers are a headache, but think about all the things that you have to do in your business when you set up a new customer. So back when I had a tax and accounting firm, you know, there was a whole bunch of stuff that we had to invest in to set up a new customer. We had to do some due diligence to make sure that we were going to be working with somebody we wanted to work with and that was going to be able to pay their bills and that was doing everything legally and wasn't shady. Um, and we just had all this paperwork. You know, we had to set up, well, paperwork in the sense of computer files now, but we, you know, we'd have to go into the database and set up new records for everybody. We'd have to get all of their employees that they had that we were going to be dealing with. We had to get them added into our CRM system. We had to set them up in the billing system. All of this stuff was just kind of, it was kind of pain in the neck overhead for taking on a new customer. Now, don't get me wrong. I was glad to have new customers, but, you know, I I get it when the admin people in the business are like, oh, I got four new customer setups to do today because it takes a lot of time. Repeat business. You don't have any of that. The other thing that you don't have is just the, the the time investment of getting to know people and build relationships. You've already got that. The customers don't have to invest in getting to know you. In, in some business, there was a time when I had a, um, when the, the firm was located in a mid-rise building downtown, and we had a parking garage, and to get to the elevators from the parking garage, you had to park on a certain floor. And then you had to remember where you parked and coming into the building, it wasn't completely clear, you know, what floor you were on and what floor you're trying to get to. So the customers had this kind of pain in the neck factor the first time they came. Well, if it's a repeat customer, there's none of that. So repeat business, definitely your cheapest kind, both financially and in terms of the time and energy you have to invest. The other thing that customer service does is, is it increases your referred business, so when people, when your current customers go out and tell other folks about you and they come in, it increases your referred business, and that's the next cheapest kind of business. The great thing about referred business is that the, the people who are sending them to you will kind of educate them about your process, like, oh, yeah, you know, he's got this and this and this that you have to do, but it's really, really worth it. Or, oh, yeah, they're located over here, and it's kind of hard to get to, but if you park in the back, it makes it a lot easier. And so it eliminates that hassle. For us, it would also eliminate a lot of that due diligence because when we go, oh, well, this person was referred by one of our best clients and they go to church together and their kids have known each other forever and they, you know, these are the kind of people that we want to do business with. So we're glad that our customer sent this person to us. And we would kind of, in our minds, the customer who referred them over was kind of vouching for them. And we knew that, you know, they were pro- the, one of the big things, one of the big tangible things for me as the business owners, I knew they were going to pay their bill. Because the last thing that you want to do is have your, your you know, good friend of yours send you over to a place and then not pay your bill and worry about, oh, is it going to get back to to my best friend that I'm using this accounting firm, but I haven't paid pay their bill. So, Referred business increases, repeat business increases. Outside of business, the other big thing that's important to me when I do strategic planning for a company is if I see a customer service-minded group of people working there, I know that the culture is going to, to be a pretty good culture. I know that morale is going to be high. Morale is, is tied to pride. If people have a lot of pride in what they're doing, then they're going to have high morale. And having pride is tied to, you know, knowing you killed it, knowing that when that customer came in the door, you managed every expectation, you hit every, you know, dotted every I, crossed every T. They left knowing that you took good care of them. And you're going to have a lot of pride in the work that you did. Now, if you've got a group of, of people who have a lot of pride in their work, you have a pretty healthy place to, to come to visit every day. The culture, it can be really influenced by this customer service mindset, the other a couple reasons, a couple other things is the customer service mentality or lack of it. It's either cancerous or it's regenerative. If it's if you have a, a customer service kind of apathy or or if you're if you're kind of antagonistic toward your customers, it's a cancerous attitude that spreads to just about everything else in the organization. The, the opposite is true, too. If you have a very healthy view of your customers, a very grateful attitude for being able to do business with them and a desire to do whatever you can to serve them, then that, too, is going to infect, quote-unquote, the organization and kind of spread and influence the way that team members react to each other, um, impact the way that you react with your vendors. It infects so many different areas, and... People who say, yeah, customer service, eh, we wish it were better. We might work on that next quarter. I think a lot of times they really fail to see how widespread the impact of that attitude is in the organization. If it's, if it's not great, then it's going to be a problem. The, um, the, uh, one other area that customer service has a big impact on when we're talking about strategy is your exit plan. Companies that are really, really good at customer service have the best chance of switching ownership without all the negative headaches. Because if if the customers are staying there because of the force of personality of the owner, or if the owner is the only person who has the customer service mindset, sometimes you'll find that the key accounts only do business with the owner. The owners, you know, they may have complained about a new salesperson they're having to deal with. They might have complained about, somebody who is on the customer service desk. And so from here forward, anytime that customer has a problem, the owner's the one who jumps in to solve it. Well, what happens when the owner's not there anymore? You've got a, you're you on a real risk of damaging the business when you're relying on the force of the personality of the owner or the single customer service mindset of the owner to drive those relationships. If a, if a prospective buyer walks in and sees that this organization is committed to customer service top to bottom and they're really good at it, they execute well, then he's going to have a very high confidence that the customers are going to stay with him. That's going to increase the amount he's willing to pay for the business. Now, you have to understand that when it comes to a lot of things that, that we do in business, whether it's growing the business or, or th- something like customer service, there is no treading water. It's a myth that you can just kind of tread water, that, that your sales can be the same for five years, uh, that you'll keep the same customers, and nothing's going to change. Things are always going to change. And the healthiest businesses are growing businesses. If you think that you're treading water, I guarantee you that there are areas of your business that are slowly dying. Maybe you're not even slowly dying. Maybe you're rapidly dying. And you're having to compensate for that in other areas. So you might be... If your customer service stinks, then your pricing might be dying very, very rapidly. You might be having to give customers lots of concessions to keep them happy. Um, and so you look at your customer list and you're like, oh, this is great. You know, we're treading water, we haven't lost any customers in the last year, but you look at your average price per existing customer and it's dropped 20% because you've had to give several large customers major concessions on big orders that you screwed up. So there is no treading water. If you're not great at customer service, there's a really good chance that you stink at it, a really good chance. Um, you might, if you're not great at it, there might be a couple people in your group that are good at it just because they're those kind of people, but I guarantee there's a lot more people who absolutely stink at it. And so the other thing is, if you don't love your customers, there's no I'm indifferent to my customers. Okay, we call that apathy, and apathy is a relationship killer. You know, there are there are plenty of marriages out there who, that aren't great. Um, in fact, the the uh, spouses actually dislike each other. Okay, and marriage counselors and coaches will tell you there's more hope for that couple that dislikes each other than there is for the couple that's just apathetic toward each other. They just don't care. They're kind of indifferent. Like, "Eh, I could take it or I could leave it. At least in the relationship where they don't like each other, there's some passion there. There's some reasons they don't like each other. There's something that has changed that they can go back and figure out what the issue is that's creating the dislike, that's creating the antagonism. But when you're apathetic, you just don't care. If you're apathetic about your customer relationships, that's a very, very bad place to be. So people will tell me, well, we're not bad at customers. We're just not great at it. Well, a lot of times that's because you're kind of apathetic. You don't, you don't really care that much about your customers. Um, so let's get into... What are what are the good what are some elements of good customer service? This is not an exhaustive list. I have not cornered the market on this. There's people who know more about customer service than I do. But my perspective comes from the perspective of the CEO or the business owner. What are the basics? What are the blocking and tackling skills that I have to master in order to, to be assured that I'm I'm at least doing well in the customer service area? I might not be winning the you know Malcolm Baldrige Award for customer excellence or, or whatever those accolades are that get handed out and talked about on public radio. But I know that my customer service is a core underpinning. It's a strength that is, is adding to the value of my business. So that's, that's the criteria that I put in place for determining what I was going to put in kind of these underpinnings of good customer service. So the, the very first one, that I think is very important is managing expectations. And I'll go through the others here and then we'll come back to managing expectations. Managing expectations number one. Transparency is number two. Relationships is number three and competency is number four. All right. so I'm, we're going to walk through these. I don't know how long it's going to take us. Um, I can get long-winded on some of this stuff but let's just get started. So managing expectations. The most important thing in managing expectations is to do what you say you're going to do. And we deal with this all the time, all the time. We find out when we do secret shopper stuff, or we survey customers, or we interview the customer service desk, or we interview the salespeople, we find all the time that a lot of people, probably the majority of the people, at least half and sometimes more of the people in our organization don't do what they say they're going to do for the customers. And I'm guilty of this too. I mean, I've, I am by no means, my clients are going to listen to this and go, oh, he needs to get better at that. And you're right, I do. But doing what you say you're going to do is, is one of those things. It's easy to promise something when you're face-to-face with a customer or when you're on the phone with them or in an email, but then you have to actually go do it and the doing is the hard part the saying is the easy part so doing what you say you're going to do is a big part of managing expectations and you have to do it when you say you're going to do it or before and this is where i fall down i get to it but i might it might be a couple hours late it might be a day late it might be a week late and i said yeah i'll get that out to you tomorrow not thinking and i made that commitment before i'd really looked at how feasible it was for me to deliver on the commitment so doing what you say you're going to do and doing it when you say you're going to do it or before you're going to say, if you really want to knock people's socks off, deliver early. I would just be cautious about getting in the habit of always delivering early because then they're going to know you're sandbagging and they're going to press you for stuff a little bit sooner. It's going to be harder for you to manage your own calendar. Um, but th- when we talk about managing expectations, you do want to deliver early and you want to, you want to, you hear this all the time, exceed people's expectations. The problem is very rarely do you know what your customer's expectations are. If you're in a very, very simple business, your customer's expectations may be pretty easy to figure out or into it. You know, my expectation when I walked into that McDonald's was that I was going to get a cup of coffee and that, that was my expectation. I was going to get a cup of coffee to exceed my expectations if the person behind the counter had made eye contact with me and said something to the effect of, um, I'll be happy to get that for you, is there anything else that you would like while you're here today? That would have exceeded my expectation. That's very, very easy to do. Most businesses aren't that simple. Most businesses have a little bit more complex service delivery angle or product delivery angle, and there's a lot of leeway or interpretation or guessing um assuming which is something that we often get in trouble for about what the customer's expectations are so i'd say doing what you say you're going to do when you're going to say you're going to do it but i would probably go back up against that and say the very first thing would be finding out what the expectations are have you literally asked the customer what is your expectation in this matter so um, when I get really, really pressed for time, I get better at this. So somebody will say, hey, we need, we, we'd need—we like to update um, this forecast or we would like to update um, th- the information we, we have feeding back into the strategy. Is that something that you could do for us? And if I'm really, really, really struggling for time, then I, I will say, yeah, I can do it, but what is your what's your time frame? When do you have to have it by? And they'll go, oh, well, I need it back tomorrow, or I need it back the next day. But a lot of times we go, oh, you know, next week, you know, that would be good. If you get it to us early next week, that's fine. And I was ready to promise to have it back to them, you know, that afternoon in some cases, because maybe they were really urgent while they were on the phone, or maybe they were, um, you know, maybe they had somebody else in their office and it just came across more urgent but if i actually ask about the expectation then i act, you know i get what's what the real deal is and i know what has to happen the um and so once you understand what the expectation is you're going to be in a position to meet or exceed it and that's very important the thing that you don't want to do is sandbag so this is where you say, um, yeah, you know, I'll be glad to get that contract back to you. Um, you know, I'm sure we can have it back to you next week. And then you send it over a week early. And they go, well, that was that was kind of weird. Now you start to run into problems about value perception. Because when you told them that it was you could pro- probably get to it next week, people kind of equate effort with value. And they go, oh, wow, maybe I'm asking for a lot of changes and okay, I should be prepared to pay for that. And what you did was you turned around and made it, you know, with by the time they got off the phone, the email was already going out the door. And they go, well, that didn't take very long. He made it sound like it was all important. It was this big deal. And I I wonder if he even did it. I'll bet he got somebody else to do You know, that's the kind of stuff that you can get into trouble with on sandbagging. But I do think... That your, my personal philosophy is that you should uh, you find out what the expectation is, and that's what you commit to. If you can, if you just can't meet the expectation, you need to be honest with them and say, "I, I know you need it back next week, but I have a family vacation planned, and there's not really anybody here that's familiar enough with that to do it right now. Um, you know, is there some can we figure out another option? But if you can meet the expectation, then that's what you should commit to. And if you can deliver early without hurting the value judgment that they place on the firm or, or the work that you're doing, then by all means, you know, go the extra mile. And there's some people who will say, well, if you knew that you're probably going to be able to deliver it a day early, why didn't you just commit to a day early? You know, you're, that's gamesmanship. You're You're just manipulating the situation so you look better. And that's, I don't see it that way. I see... If my, cons- if my primary concern is their experience, then I'm going to do whatever I can to make that experience positive. So if I know that um, I can make the experience super positive by delivering a day early, then I may set it up so that I'm, I've got a high likelihood of being able to deliver it a day early, which might mean pushing their expectation da- back a, a day so I've got that extra day to make it happen early but just don't I mean I think there is a way to do this without manipulating the situation that's all I'm trying to say so that's managing expectations number one find out what the expectations are and then you know go back and listen to the last week's episode on time and task management because that's kind of where this comes down to once you find out what the expectations are if you're not good at managing your time, you're not going to know whether you can meet the expectation or not. And if you're not good at managing your tasks, you're going to forget that you have an expectation to meet a certain deadline and you're going to let the customer down. So the reason we started with time and task management first because if you don't have that going for you, everything else we're going to talk about later, even things like customer service that people think, oh, those are warm and fuzzy. You know, I want my my customers to love me. Listen, if, you're not, if you stink at time and task management, there's a really good chance you're going to be terrible at customer service. So go back and listen to that. Figure out the expectations. Don't, uh, don't manipulate the customer's emotions. But if you have the opportunity to go the extra mile or to deliver early to exceed expectations, then by all means, let's, let's do that and let's give them the experience that they're going to rave about. So the second big area, I think, in, in customer service is transparency, Um, we have this this facade, I think, a lot of times that we put up in front of our customers because it's our our perception that they expect us to be perfect. And that's just not the case. Um, When I was reviewing a lot of tax returns, you know, there would be occasions where you would miss something. And not only would you miss it, the customer would find out that you missed it, and they would call you on it and be like, hey, you know, this number doesn't match this number or... I told you that, you know, my, my son already graduated from college and he shouldn't be our dependent anymore and you've still got him on here. And, you know, that's, that kind of stuff is mortifying for somebody who takes a lot of pride in their work. But I heard another CPA in, in Thrival tell me one time that, you know, not every, um, every tax return is a test and not everybody no one gets 100 percent on every test and that was that's the way he would explain it to his customers i don't know if i ever had the opportunity to share that i have plenty of opportunities i don't know if i ever took the took the time to kind of use that analogy with a customer but i think it works really really well no one expects their kids to get 100 percent on every test if they do they're delusional um but in business, oftentimes, we think that our customers expect us to get it absolutely 100% right 100% of the time. And we're human. That's not going to happen. So understand that no one gets 100% on every test. You're going to have mistakes. And you need to make sure that your customers understand that. And I would, I, I, did take the time when we would have a more complex tax return come in and during our whole due diligence process where we're talking to the client we would explain how our preparation and review process works. And and I would say things like, um, this is a really complex tax return, and there are going to be a number of people who prepare it and a couple people who review it, and we're going to do the absolute best we can. Now, I I can guarantee you we're not going to miss anything big, but the devil is in the details. And there might be a misspelling, and, and that's as bad as it gets. But there may be there may be something financial that we miss. There might be a rounding error or there might be um, a wrong depreciation method or, you know, there's, there could be a thousand different things on something that complex. And we may not get it 100% right. But here's what I will tell you. If we don't get it right and we find out that we didn't get it right, we will go back and we will make it right at our expense, not yours. Because we're not perfect. We know that and we want to be open and, and transparent with you on that. When you make, transparency requires that when you make a mistake, you own it. It's not enough just to say, yeah, I know I screwed up. Um, you have to go, I screwed up. And I know that you expect more of, of me than that. And I'm going to do what I can to make it better. A lot of times I've seen this in places where I've worked, where, you know, the, the junior staff person gets thrown under the bus because the partner doesn't want to own the mistake. They're perfectly happy handing the mistake off to the person that they're responsible for supervising, but they won't own the mistake. And I have seen it in clients' eyes, the disdain for that partner. And the, the client gets it, guys. I mean, that's the thing. Your customer understands this stuff and they don't understand why you at the top of the organization are not willing to own the mistake. When you make a mistake, you have to own it. Or you lose credibility. Once you lose credibility, you're in jeopardy of losing the customer. So transparency requires that you communicate to the customer, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm going to do my absolute best for you. Um, when I do make a mistake, I'm going to own it. And one of the things that this does for you, if you if you have confidence in the face of fallibility, you're going to gain a tremendous amount of respect from the customer maybe rapport with the customer because they're going to kind of like what they see they might admire you for being able to do that but the reason that that is so appealing is when you when you have this confidence in the face of failure. when you say yeah we screwed up but I know we can do better I know it I know that we're better than this and I know that when you give us the chance we're going to absolutely blow your socks off that requires a great deal of humility on your part to be able to say that. Because number one, you're saying, I screwed up. Number two, you're saying, I know that you have the ability because of my screw-up to take your business elsewhere. And I I recognize that fact. And in spite of that, I'm really asking you to stick around and give us another shot. Humility is a very attractive thing. And I think people often underestimate the value of displaying humility to their customers because they feel like they should they shouldn't have to. They feel like I should be this this larger than life figure that never screws up, and that's just not the case. I said it before. I'll say it again: the customers are smarter than you think they are, and they they can see that those lame excuses are just lame excuses. The um, the customer can and and understand this too. For in your situation, that customer is one of hundreds or one of thousands of customers, right? So you don't remember every interaction with that customer, but you are one of one vendor who does what that customer needs to have done. And I guarantee you, they're going to remember every interaction. So when you tell them that the email just didn't come through for the fourth time, they're not going to believe you. Because you've already used that. Now you've forgotten that you used that excuse, and you're actually lying to them, which is not a not a very good thing to do. It doesn't show a lot of integrity, but they're going to see right through it. So be transparent with them. Admit your mistakes. Own them. Um, have confidence when you when you fail. Exercise humility. Let let them see it. Um, the thing that I would tell my team members when something like this would happen is you know, say, listen, and when we admit that we made the mistake, because we're going to admit it, there's no, there's no point in lying to the customer and hiding it in spite of, you know, in addition to your personal beliefs about whether lying is right or wrong, you go, we're not going to lie to the customer about this. And the reason that we're not going to lie is because we believe lying is wrong. But the other thing that we have to remember is we may lose the sale So we're going to be honest with the customer and tell them we screwed up. And they may decide to go somewhere else, right? But we're already at less than our best, right? We screwed this up. This was not our best work, okay? And if I've got to lie to keep a customer while I'm not doing my best work, then I'm not going to build a career. I'm not going to build a world-class reputation on half ass work but that's just, that's reality. So I would tell them, look, we're going to admit our mistake because, look, we screwed this up. If we were to pretend like this wasn't a screw-up and just try to sweep it under the rug, we're never going to get the opportunity to be better. And if this customer leaves us and it stings quite a bit because we lose the revenue next year, well, I'm willing to take that hit because I guarantee you we're going to pay attention to it from then on. If we try to sweep it under the rug and not worry about it and we get away with it, then we're much, much, much more likely to make this mistake again and again and again and again and, again, and we're not going to get any better. So you're not going to build a career on half ass work. You might as well admit to the customer that you did your worst or you didn't do your best and that you want to do better and then let the chips fall where they may. If you lose the sale, you lose the sale. I would much rather have um, a portfolio of customers that I had done really, really great work for and had lost a few on the wayside that I didn't do good work for than have a portfolio full of customers that I had done crappy work for, half, half-assed work for, and they just stayed with me because I wasn't willing to admit the mistake. So I've spent way too much time on that. But the last thing I'll say about transparency is transparency is your one and only chance to become wise that this is an extraordinary opportunity. When something goes wrong or when something doesn't um, meet the customer's expectation, you have the opportunity to be transparent and to take that, that experience to the bank and build it into wisdom. And the best business owners I know, the guys that I admire the most, that I know and that I ask to mentor me and that I go to for advice, they have been transparent and they have not let that pain of transparency go to waste. They 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 were licking their wounds, and they came away from that experience and said, I will never do that again, or wow, I had no idea that this was such an important thing for our business to pay attention to. So take advantage of it. Use it to your benefit, and think about the really long term. I know that when you make a mistake, all your focus is on is the next interaction with that customer and how painful it's gonna be and you just wanna get past it. But think down the road, five, 10, 15, 20 years. What kind of company are you gonna build and how can can being transparent in this instance help you build that company? So the next area uh, as far as customer service goes is relationship. You have to look for opportunities to build rapport with your customers. They are looking to do business with people they like. They're looking to do business with people that they feel kind of sticky with, that they they can get to know a little bit better every time they have an interaction with. And if you don't recognize the importance of customer service and building a relationship with somebody, I mean, stop listening right now. I mean, if you if you want to have good relationships with people, serve them well. And it starts with integrity. We go right back to that doing what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. People like people they can trust. And, and sometimes they may not even like you, but if they can trust you, they'll st- still do business with you. I've certainly had people like that that I've worked with before. These are not people that I necessarily want to hang out with on the weekends or take a family vacation with, but I know that I can trust them, and so I'm more than happy to do business with them. The, uh, the thing about relationship, it makes it a lot easier when you can care about the person. And, and I take this to a little bit farther. I and mean, One of the key values I try to run my business around is care. Care, truth, and diligence. Those are the t- three values that I really t- do my best. I, and I fail often, but those are the ones that are in a, a spot in my office where I can see them every time I look up from my desk. And caring, that the whole idea or the sentence behind caring is we love those we serve. And if you can do that, you're going to be very successful at building a relationship with them. You're going to be better at serving them, which is going to lead to a better relationship. And sometimes it's tough. <laughs> Some people are hard to love, right? And so if I, if I have a hard time... Caring about the person, I find something that I can care about. Maybe it's their business. Maybe it's the, uh, maybe I care a lot about the product and I, w- I just want to see it used in the best way possible. So I'm going to really serve this customer well so that I can see that product used well. Um, maybe I care about the person's family. Maybe I care about, um, maybe I, I care about the person's position in the community and I want that to be enhanced. I may not care a lot for the person, but I respect the office that they hold or the position, they hold or the influence they have in the community and I want that to be extended. Whatever it is, you know, sometimes caring for the person's hard and you can find something that you can care about. And if you're not the top dog that has the ability to fire customers, this is very, very important. When I was working for somebody else, there were plenty of customers who were just kind of jerks and I had to find something about them that was semi-attractive enough to want to work with them and sometimes it was a chore i'll say this if you're the owner of the business and you're having a really hard time caring for the customer a a particular customer don't try that hard It, it might be you need to let this customer take their business elsewhere and the reason is it's gonna be if it's hard for you it's gonna be near impossible for your team to care about this person. So I, I really caution business owners um, to, for with this attitude, of the customer's always right. I don't think that's the case. I think if you're working for somebody, you have to have that attitude to be successful in your job because treating the treating the customer as always right helps you respect your employer, and that's that's good for the business, for you, that's good for everybody. But if you're the business owner and the customer is being a jerk to your team members or the customer is just a deplorable person to work with, then you owe it to your team to fire the customer or not do business with the customer. Um, I, always, I told my team that they could come to me at any time and they could tell me to fire a customer or that the, they didn't want to work with a customer anymore. But they had to understand that I was going to take action on that complaint. So it better not be an idle threat. And it may not, it it should not be just a gripe session. They need to understand that not only is the business going to lose the revenue, but we are going to potentially make an enemy out of somebody. We're going to do it very tactfully and very respectfully. We're going to do the best thing, best job we can to leave on good terms, but we have no. no power over what that person's going to say when they walk out the door, and there's a very good chance they'll see them at a restaurant or at a community event or a church service or something like that, and they need to know that you know, they're going to have to face the consequences of letting that person go if they bring an issue to me and go, you know, this person just isn't somebody we should be working with. So I'd always get a bat for them, but I'd, I never failed to express kind of the gravity of the situation and let them know this is a pretty big deal when you fire somebody but that's when you're talking about building relationships and having great customer service experience in your business you have to be working with the right people the last thing i'll say about relationship is that you you have to understand why this person is using you or using your product and i think going right back to managing expectations i think we fail to do the homework to understand why is this why really is this person coming to us what's the what's the real reason that they're going to use us just a second sorry i had to shut a door there but you know you have to go you have to understand what's the reason that they're coming to us because that's That's what I need to be doing to to have a good experience. The, um, The person might be coming to you because your product is the best product on the market. That's always our assumption. Oh, well, they're here because we're the best at what we do. They might be there because they just had a really bad experience with their competitor and they're like me walking into that McDonald's. I didn't walk into that McDonald's because McDonald's was the best at what they did. I walked into that McDonald's because they're really the only option I had available at the time. And had McDonald's known that, they would have probably approached me differently. They would have approached me with a mindset of converting me to a McDonald's customer instead of living with the reality that I was a long-term Starbucks customer and would probably remain to be a remain a Starbucks customer. How you figure this stuff out, I mean, like I said, in that, in that kind of business, that's going to be tough. They're not going to have that kind of conversation with you. But most of us have the luxury of having these products and services where we get a fair amount of interaction with the customer before they make the purchase decision or during the due diligence phase. So understanding why they're using you gives you a context for what kind of relationship are they looking for. Are they looking for a best product Relationship? Or are they looking for a best service relationship? Maybe they're looking for, um, maybe they're looking for something that's going to give them peace of mind, and that's not a product or service. That's a person. People give peace of mind. Products and services don't give peace of mind. Um, so just understand, you know, take the time to say, why are they hiring me? What's the real reason that they're hiring me? What's the real problem they're hiring me to solve? Is it that they need peace of mind? Is it that they need somebody to hold their hand through this business transaction? Is it uh, the uncertainty that's been created in the past and what they really need is confidence and certainty? When they come to me, they don't need 15 options, they need two and they really need me to step out of my comfort zone and recommend the one of the two that I think is really best for their situation. So those are the kinds of things that, deepen relationships and help you have a better customer service experience. So last area, and then we're going to get into kind of a few miscellaneous tips and tricks kind of things, competency. So we've talked about uh, managing expectations. We've talked about transparency. We've talked about relationship. Now we're going to talk about competency. So this goes to that best product or service. I mean, that does have something to do with whether or not the person had a good customer service experience with you. So, what, and this is going to sound harsh, but I've told this to clients that we consult with. If you don't know what you're doing, you don't have any business doing it for a customer. Okay? There's, there's no such thing as fake it until you make it with customer service. Because customers, there's no faking it. They either know whether they're being served well or they're not. And if they're not and you're pretending like they are, you're giving your, permis- your, your uh, employees permission to pretend like they are, it's just going to damage your reputation in the marketplace, and it's not going not to be a good thing. So understand where you're at competency-wise, and if you stink at what you're doing, go get training. Go figure it out. Go in a back room and sell to another uh, team member or uh, run through call scripts on the phone or whatever you have to do to get better at it and build competency. If you're incompetent, it's going to do nothing but hurt your customer service experience, and you have to understand that everybody in an organization is at a different level of competency. There, no two people are, are identical. You can, uh, we've walked into situations with, you know, twenty or thirty team members in the exact same job description spot on the org chart, and the owner is always able to rank those people from one to twenty in terms of best to to worst. So understand where you're at, you do have to set kind of a minimum level of competency below which you're not going to let people in front of customers. That's just not acceptable. So if you're going to have a great customer service experience, you have to have these standards of competency that you're willing to enforce. And you're willing to take people out of the field. You're willing to take them off the service desk. You're willing to take them out of the showroom if they don't have this particular level of competency. And that that's important for your customers because you don't want people having bad experiences and going out there in the market and sharing this but it's also very very important for your culture as a company to for people to understand i'm called to excellence if i'm going to work here i'm called to excellence i have to be great at my job and the person who didn't get pulled off the show floor is going to see somebody who did and go, you know what, I need to take this manual home tonight and bone up on some of these other things because I don't want to get pulled off the floor. The person who's sent to extra sales training is going to be seen by the other salesmen, and they are going to be a lot more mindful the next time they do a presentation, a pitch, or a proposal and do their best work. So competency... Uh, enforcing competency standards in the organization doesn't just help those people getting the training and that's your job as the employer to give them the training it also helps the people who aren't getting the training but are seeing that these standards are being upheld and adhered to so the other thing I'll say about competency if, if it's if if you're good at it it's fun right but if you're great at it it's fulfilling and there is a distinction there. There's there's plenty of people who are pretty good at what they do. And it takes about, in my experience, it takes about two or three years worth of experience to be good at what you do. And then there's a point somewhere between I don't know, three years and 10 years, depending on how complex the job is, where you become really great at it. And there's a lot of books written on this. Um, maybe I'll link up to those in the show notes. But the whole idea of the 10,000 hours, um, you know, that, that may be one of the factors that's kicking in here, but I don't know how long it takes you to get, to go from good to great at something. But I do know that when I observe this at clients, I can see that people are good and they're, they're having a good time. They're, they're at ease. Um, they're joking around. They're, they don't take themselves too seriously. They know that they're good at their job. But then within that pool of 10 or 15 or 20 people who look just like them, in terms of job description, there is somebody who's great, maybe two or three people who are just great at what they do. And they're not just having fun. They are living life. It's fulfilling. They go to work in the morning knowing that they're making a difference. They leave work in the evening knowing that they have made a difference. And it's a fulfilling way to work. That's what competency can do for you. So, as the employer, if you're listening to this and you're going, oh, I got some people who are okay and some people are not, listen, training is your responsibility. You've got to, to pick it up and own it and know that if you've got people who aren't performing in your business, you have to at least make the effort to train them to be great. Now, it's up to them whether they engage the training whether they do their homework and really use it to their advantage to get better at what they do and to become more competent. But I hear business owners complain all the time about how this person needs more work on this or this person needs more work on that, and they won't spend a few hundred bucks or a few thousand bucks to train these people. Training is your responsibility. You have to own it. There are very few things If you hire the right people, and hiring, I think, comes down to character more than anything else. If you hire the right people, there are very, very, very few things that can't be overcome with training. And there are very few people who can't become superstars without training. So um, I think that's, uh, again, I get on a soapbox when I talk about this because I see people get laid off or fired or replaced uh, because they're not superstars but they've never been afforded the opportunity to become superstars through better training greatness when we talk about um, competency, I think a lot of times we underestimate we we think that customers have this perception of us being perfect, but when the rubber meets the road we we don't hold ourselves to an expectation of greatness in the competency scale. so we're hesitant to be transparent and admit mistakes because we think the customer feels we should be perfect. But when the customer tells us that we should be perfect, we go, well, we're doing the best that we can. And what you have to understand is that greatness, as far as competency goes, I'm not talking about perfection, but greatness, as far as competency goes, is a table stake for your customer's money. Right? They're, they're agreeing to spend money with you. And in exchange for that money, they expect greatness or, they would, or they'd be spending it with somebody else. They think that they're going to get the best thing they can get from you versus somebody else. So they're bringing you your money. And if your employees have kind of a, a laissez-faire attitude about increasing their competency on a daily basis, you need to remind them that like, our customers expect us to be getting better at this every day. They expect us to be better than the guy across the street, and we're not going to let them down. If your product stinks, um, you know, or your service stinks, and you're just not at that greatness level, then make it better. I mean, you've, you've got some homework to do. Some of you listening to this know that your customer service experience is terrible, or it's inconsistent, which is almost worse than terrible. But You've got your homework to do. Get busy. Let's fix it. But continue to be honest until you can say it's great. Like, there's no shame in admitting to your customer that we're working on this. We know that we have a ways to go, but we're working on it. It's much better to say that than to do the fake it, you make it. Oh, we're great at this. While all the time your customer's experiencing something that's way, way, way less than great. So, uh you know, kind of going back to this, own it. You'll see me, you'll hear me say, own it a lot. Um, you know, own it. Can commit to take the actions to make it better, and be honest with your customers because they can see what's going on. So, real quick, uh, I've got just a few more minutes here. As far as how this stuff plays out and the, the daily grind of things. I've got a few things that, that I recommend to clients on a very regular basis. And sometimes we'll even do little training sessions on these for them so that they, they have a, a better handle on it. We've developed products around these that they use in their business to help it. But the, the first thing um, that's, that's kind of a, another takeaway from Ritz-Carlton is that notes are really your best friend. Ritz-Carlton has this legendary database that they keep your customer information in. Everything from uh, your your first and last name, your kids' names, uh, your birthday, your anniversary, they're they're kind of primed to ask some of these leading questions about why are you here? are you, are you celebrating anything special? And if you are celebrating something special and uh, and you tell them, oh, it's my wife's birthday tomorrow. We've had this happen. Um, you know, a card comes under the, ma- under the door from the manager tomorrow, you know, the next day saying, happy birthday. We're so glad you came and spent your birthday with us. If there's anything we can do to make it more special, please let us know. Well, the interesting thing is if you come back a year later, don't be surprised if the front desk clerk says, and happy birthday, Ms. Branham. We're so glad that you came back to stay with us this year. That's in their database. And w- if, you're fr- if you're dealing with customers on the front line, Notes are critical. When you have an interaction with that customer, even if, it, even if it's not super, super substantive, take notes and put them in something that you can go back to later. Um, the other thing I'll say is that, you know, in uh, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he talks about the importance of using people's names. If you're not doing that with your customers, they know it, they recognize it, they understand it. It makes such a big difference when you do use the name, Um, It makes just as big a difference when you don't. They're smart people. They can figure this stuff out. If you don't know their name, they don't think that you care about them. Uh, Handwritten notes, they still stand out. Now, in fact, more than ever in the age of email, the salesperson or the customer service person or the business owner who sends a handwritten note to a customer is always going to have that customer's attention. You're always going to do well sending handwritten notes. I firmly believe that. Um, before you interact with a customer, if you have the opportunity, if you're going into a sales call or you have an appointment, um, preparation, uh, just a little bit of preparation. I'm not talking about technical preparation. I'm talking about relational preparation. Um, five minutes is an awful lot of time. If you get to an appointment five minutes early and sit in the parking lot and you go over your notes that you've taken earlier about, Kids' names and spouses' names, and anniversaries and birthdays and kids' ages and where they go to school. Um, It it all depends on that. Those were things that I would pay attention to because I was intimately involved in this family's financial life. And these are the kinds of things that we would always small talk about before appointments. But if you're in a different business where you don't have that intimacy that you have when you're talking about financial affairs, um, maybe you're, if you're in a pool business, having good notes about what you've done at that location in the past or struggles they've had or repair people you've seen at the property to be able to say, Oh, I noticed that your heat pump guy was here the other day. Um, and it looks like you might be putting in a new unit is is that more energy efficient? If, if efficiency is one of those things you're concerned about, we have a new two stage pump that you might be interested in. You know, so that those are the kinds of things that a little bit of preparation, goes a long way and a little bit, like I said, five minutes is a lot of time to go over customer notes and kind of get your head back in where that customer lives and what they do and what's important to them. Um, The other thing is sometimes customers like to be a trophy. In fact, most times they like to be a trophy. There are a few instances where they don't. What I mean by trophy is a lot of customers will really enjoy hearing you say things like, Uh, This is John. You know, he's been a great client. One of the things I really like about John is that whenever we talk about doing something in his business, he goes out and he does it. No holds barred. Or this is John. Uh, He's been a very successful owner in this industry. If you have any questions, I'm sure he'd be glad to give you some advice about this issue that you're facing. Or uh, this is Jim. Jim's been buying cars for me for the last 20 years And, you know, he's one of my best customers and we've gotten to know each other's kids and customers like being trotted out as trophies in that way. Now, if you're a bankruptcy attorney, you probably don't want to bring your former uh, bankruptcy clients out and trot them out as trophies. You know, sometimes you need to get permission to do these things. But there are lots of examples of ways salespeople and businesses have figured out to, to make their customers trophies, to build pride in their customers, to let the customer know that the business has pride in them that builds that relationship. There's a -- I have to see if I can find this and put it, put it in the show notes. but there's a, a car salesman in Texas, and he sells most of his cars online, and it's just a, it's a little tiny, independent. Uh, used car dealership and people will let him know what kind of car they're looking for he'll go out and find it and then they come to him to pick it up they fly out there and pick it up and he has the same picture for every person who buys a car from him that the car is parked in the same spot pointed i think in the same direction and the couple who's smiling taking delivery of their brand new car is standing right there on either side of him and everybody's happy. I mean, who's not happy when they pick up their new car and you can go to this guy's website and you can scroll through if, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of pictures of these happy, satisfied customers. And do you think they like seeing their picture on there? I mean, that sometimes they're probably indifferent, but it's like, man, this guy really cares enough to take my picture and put it up on his website. So anyway, that's, that's one of the things about tr- using your custom- customers as trophies can help show a lot of pride, uh, the pride that your business has in being able to work with them, and that's a good thing. Um, last thing is just go back to basics. If you haven't listened to the section on or the session on time and task management, all of this stuff gets better with better time and task management. So if you stink at that, or if it's not something that you're particularly um, You know, great at, then it's probably a good idea for you to go back and listen to that session. All of this stuff really, really does feed into getting to a point where the business can start to think about creative strategy for growing the business and taking it to the next level. So we're going to keep working on some of these foundational topics for the next two weeks. And um, if you have questions or comments, put them in the in the uh, comment section. And we'll address those on future episodes. But thanks again for your time. Uh, I've really enjoyed this and I look forward to talking to you next week.